songs get me fired up. No one can take from me my destiny. You know, that sounds like a self-help kind of thing, but this, this is a powerful spiritual reality that we need to get a hold of. So we're going to, going to take some time today to uh, get into the book of Ephesians. Uh, again, in the same text, I'm going to start... <laughs> I'm going to start off off script before we even get going. So while I said we're going to be in Ephesians 1, and we will be, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 42. If you are um, not sure where that is, open to the middle of your Bible. You'll probably find the Psalms. You're going to go right before that. Now, we're all familiar with the story of Job, whether we actually know the story rightly or not is questionable. Uh, most of us, I venture to say, have not actually read through the entire book of Job uh, to study it. However, most of us get the idea that Job, uh, you know, went through a lot of stuff, right? And we hear about Job's patience. That's really not in any way uh, even close to the point of the story. Uh, this book demonstrates a person who is facing adversity that they did not cause, it's not by any uh, choices that they made that went wrong, not being punished for sin, but what in his mind, in Job's mind, and in the observation of people, seems random and arbitrary. We know in chapter 1, it is anything but. God says to the devil... In case you're not sure this conversation is happening in heaven. And, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's faithful and true. And the devil says, well, of course he is, because you give him stuff. Stop taking care of him. See if he doesn't turn on you immediately. And God says, okay, you've got permission to mess with his stuff. But don't lay a hand on him. And he takes all of his stuff. Job's the, the richest man anybody knows. And he's got these kids, he's righteous, and he's got his flocks and herds, and the devil comes in and takes all this stuff away, long story short. And Job says, hey, the Lord gave me all this stuff, and now the Lord's taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise God. I didn't lose anything I didn't get from him in the first place. And the devil comes back, and God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Check him out, man. He's faithful. That sounds a little disrespectful. I don't mean to have a disrespectful tone as I tell the story. And the devil says, well, of course. But skin for skin, you hurt him. You took his stuff. Hurt him. See if he doesn't turn on you in a second. God says, okay. Do your worst. But you can't kill him. So the devil comes and afflicts him with painful sores all over his body, and Job is suffering, and his wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? He had this great reputation as a righteous man, but all the people see him being cursed by God, being stricken and afflicted. And they say, God's hand must be against him. Clearly has something wrong. Their theology was off, and that's the preponderance of the book, is wrestling through the theological implications of what it means to go through suffering. And Job says to his wife, are we supposed to accept good from God and not bad? No, no. 
That's not how this works. Job's attitude remains, blessed be the name of the Lord. In the middle of the story, as he's debating with his friends, as, as Job is saying, look, I didn't do anything wrong. When God shows up to, to answer the questions here, you will see this vindication. God will show that I am, that I am righteous and holy, and I have done nothing wrong. I'm blameless before him. And as his friends are pointing these things out, thank you, Shelley, as his friends are pointing these things out, that, look, if you just repent, then God will relent. He'll take this stuff away from you. He's a good God. He's fair. He's just. Just do the right thing, Job. And Job, in the middle of all of this attack from his friends, they're well-meaning. They're just not well-informed. He says, even if God were to slay me, yet will I place my hope in him. I will trust him. I will praise him. Nothing will shake that. All right? So this is Job's attitude through all of this. And then we get to the end of the story, and God shows up. In chapter 38, we see God show up. In fact, let's go back to 38. I'm getting some freebies here today. 38 verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And he goes on through this entire, <laughs> this entire speech that God gives, saying, Hey, Job, who are you? I know who I am. I'm God. You seem to be confused because you seem to think that you have some insight as to what I should be doing. Remember, Job's the faithful one here. He hasn't turned. Now, jump ahead. to Let's look at chapter 40 before we go to 42. Chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I, I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And God continues. He doesn't let up on Job. He gets to the end in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord in verse 1, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I will despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
after the Lord had said these things to Job, he rebukes Job's friends. And he says to them, I am angry with you because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Pause for just a moment and let that sink in. God has just confronted Job and said, Son, sit down and shut up. And let me show you how this actually works. I'm God, you're not. Now, if it sounds like perhaps I'm adding some imagination to the tone of that, I'm not. You read 38 through 42, and that is the tone that you see in the words of the Lord. Job, sit down, shut up. I'm God, you're not. And yet, having said that, having Job now say, I didn't know what I was talking about. I thought I knew something, but I don't know nothing. I'm going to sit down and shut up. You be God, I'll be me. Which means I am nothing. God then says, Job did right. Job spoke truth. You all think you know something. And I'm angry with you. Therefore, my servant Job will pray to me for you. He'll pray on your behalf. And I'll honor his prayers. What God does in Job needs to inform us as we walk through our study today. It needs to inform us every day in every way as we function in life. Whatever else happens, start here. God is God and I am not. Does that seem logical? Seem like a good place to start? Let's say that together because I want you to have it in your head as we work through this. God is God and I am not. I only heard myself and three lips out there working, which is weird because you got two lips apiece, so I'm not sure how that worked out. So let's do this together. Do it strongly in your heart because we got to know this truth if we're going to get anywhere as Christ followers in particular. But if we're going to understand truth and reality as revealed to us in the scriptures, even as revealed to us in our observation of the world, we must begin with this presupposition as a firm conviction. Let's say it together. God is God and I am not. Let's emphasize this. Turn past Psalms and Proverbs. We're going to go a little bit past there to the book of Isaiah. Among my favorite passages in the Bible is Isaiah 6. This is the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah. Now, just a little perspective. The book of Job, scholars believe, may have been the first the, uh, book of the Bible written. Not, not first in chronology. We see Genesis begin with the beginning. But the book of Job, taking place sometime uh, in the history of the world, in the history of humanity, so after the stories we see in Genesis, was actually uh, presumed to be written or thought to be written earlier than those other books. Why do you think God might have inspired that book to be the first one written down? Maybe it's because before we can understand anything else, we need to grasp the idea 
that God is God and I'm not. Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet writes this, In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. I love to explain this. I'm not going to take the time today because I'm already uh, 10 minutes in and haven't even gotten to my introduction in the beginning of the sermon yet. Above Him, were seraphim. That word means burning ones, angelic beings whose picture for us is that of fire. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Four of these are humility, two of them are practical. And they were calling to one another. Check it out now. You're in the temple. The, the Lord is high and exalted. The train of His robe fills the temple. There's this picture of glory before we even start. And then we see these burning ones flying back and forth saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Notice here, in verse 5, the reaction of Isaiah the prophet. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah encounters this vision of God and he's so overwhelmed with who God is. This sovereign, holy God who is bigger than our imagining. And the first thing that strikes him is, I do not belong here. I am not like him and I am not fit to be in his presence. I'm a dead man. And then God intervenes on his behalf, has the angel, this burning seraphim. Now, how hot, <laughs> how hot is the coal on the altar if the burning one needs tongs to pick it up? That hotness is the heat of God's holiness. That's what this altar represents. The holiness of God and this angel who in his burning nature cannot compare to the holiness of God, then intervenes, he does the acting to take away Isaiah's guilt, to strip him of his unworthiness by infusing, if you will, God's holiness into the situation. And Isaiah's response is, my whole life has changed. I have no other reason for existing than to represent you. Now, hopefully, now that my heart rate is elevated, hopefully we're ready to start. 
Hopefully we're in the right frame of mind. Some of you are thinking, hopefully we get done before the Super Bowl starts, but I'm going to need a drink for this. As we, as we begin, we will now go back to Ephesians 1, and we'll go there. Before we start to look at biblical text, I'm going to just talk for a moment about food. I like food. You like food. We all like food. When I was a kid growing up, uh, very much like today as my siblings and uh, children, nieces, nephews, and grandchildren can attest, my mom made a lot of food. Uh, <laughs> a lot. You know, when it, when it came to food, especially desserts, my mom's core conviction, her, her deep, strongly held belief is that overkill is underrated. So we're going to have a lot of food. Conveniently, that worked out really well for us because our approach to eating was the same. My whole life, when mom would ask dad if he wanted this dessert or the other, his answer was always the same. My sister and brother will know exactly what I'm talking about. Dan, do you want the blueberry pie or the apple? And his answer was invariably, yes. Chocolate or vanilla ice cream? Yes! She may have framed the question as an either or, but Dad understood it always to be a both and. There wasn't a choice. It's both. You got two pies? I'm eating two pies. That's how it works. Now, Dad got it. He got what we're going to be talking about today. Today, we're going to pause to look at the idea of predestination in Ephesians 1. And people often wrestle with the concept of God's predestination versus human action. We frame the question as an either or, but it's really a both and. The answer is yes. I pray that our brief study today is going to help all of us to grasp it a little better to the praise of God's glorious grace. Let's pause for just a second. Father, uh, open our eyes today. Open our eyes with wonder. And as we look at your word, remind us that you are God and we are not. Cause us to see your truth, your promises as precious. Father, in the words of Augustine, command what you will and grant what you command. Move in us to prepare us for what you're going to do in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, uh, as we look at this, uh, we are... Uh, <clears throat> um, we are back in Ephesians 1, and we want to look at this text because we're going to not be talking so much about the, the, the big picture stuff as we normally would, but we're going to get down into the nitty-gritty a little bit to this week and next week. And we're going to talk today about this idea of being chosen and also secure. Because we are chosen... We are, therefore, secure. And we're going to look at the idea of predestination. We're going to talk about that. And 
as we do it, we need to see what Paul is saying in this passage about particular elements of it through the lens of the whole book and the lens of his main idea, the big picture, in this passage. So a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the overview of the book of Ephesians, we saw that the theme of the book, the core reality for the whole thing, is that God's great purpose is to bring all things together under his kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. We will see in Ephesians the reconciliation of all things to God in Christ. Everything placed under his feet. The dividing wall between different people groups in Christ removed, wiped out. The dividing wall between us as sinners and a holy God removed, wiped out. The division between what we claim to believe and who we are and how we live it removed, wiped out. So that all things come together for him, all for one. Now, last week when we talked about uh, verses 1 to 14, we saw the, the core reality there, the theme of the passage, is that God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. So what we want to see as we are working through this is everything that God wants to tell us through those lenses. All right, so we want to look at through these two lenses, and those of you with bifocals or progressives understand what it, what it means to look through a couple of different lenses here. Through the picture of the book, we see all things brought into this oneness, into this unity, under the kingdom rule of God in Jesus Christ. And specifically in this passage we're looking at today, keep in mind, watch what we're talking about about predestination through the lens that God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. Now, as we look at this today, the core reality we want to talk about for today's message, this is our third core reality, and we're just getting going here, right? So we got our lenses we're going to look at it through, but the core reality that we're going to be seeing here is this. Our destiny in Christ is as settled as God's sovereignty. Our destiny in Christ is as settled as God's sovereignty. Do you remember what we learned from Job? God is God, right? If God is God, what does that mean about me? I am not. God is God. I am not. God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, God does what he will. And Job said in, in uh, verse 2 of that chapter we looked at, your plans, your purposes cannot be thwarted. No purpose of God's can be thwarted, undermined, undone, canceled, broken up. It can't happen. What God says, He does. What God proposes, God disposes. So as we look at this, remember, our destiny in Christ is as settled as God's sovereignty. So uh, I had the, the privilege, and I would encourage you if you have the opportunity to uh, to read or listen to, I listened to it on YouTube as someone read, the sermon from Charles Spurgeon from uh, the uh, mid to late 1800s 
called uh, predestination and calling. You might jot that down if you want to check it out and hear a much better preacher than you're going to hear today. Predestination and calling. And he works through this. I'm not going to preach sermons from someone else. So I'm not going to repeat for you Spurgeon's uh, material, but Spurgeon's text is the same text that we're looking at. Spurgeon's source is the scriptures, the holy book of God. And I am going to steal his format. I'm going to change the wording just slightly. But he set it up in three parts, what he called uh, illustration, examination, and consolation. I'm going to change it to explanation, examination, and consolation because I like what he did, so I just stole it and he can't stop me. So, uh, Let's look at it in these three parts. What we want to do is, is kind of break down what is it we're talking about. When we use the term predestination, and, and why in the world does this preacher keep banging this drum talking about this controversial subject? So we want to figure that out. Then once we figure it out, we want to examine ourselves. We want to look at ourselves in light of the Scripture and see what this means for us. And then lastly, once we have explained the idea and examined ourselves, we want to see how this affects us in our lives. And we'll look at that under the heading of consolation. First explanation, what are election and predestination? Now, we can't escape it in Scripture, so we'd better learn to grasp it. Most of us are like, you know, and I I can say I've had this conversation with some of you even here in this room. Why do you have to talk about it? Just, you know, it's controversial. People get confused and it brings fear and so on. So why not just leave it alone? Well, for that very reason, because it's confusing, because it brings fear, we want to understand it. More than that, because it's in the book. If I read something in the book and I am ashamed of it, afraid of it, confused by it, I am dishonoring God. If we are going to have a high view of Scripture, if we're going to recognize the Bible as the revealed will of God, the revealed Word of God, where He explains Himself, which He does not have to do, and He speaks to us created beings, lower creatures, who should be on our face before God saying, I am ruined. And he chooses to reveal himself to us. We better pay attention. When God repeats a theme over and over and over again, we dare not ignore it. You cannot escape the reality of predestination in the scriptures, in case you have heard perhaps that, that Calvin or the other reformers became obsessed with this idea, and so it was new to them, let's not kid ourselves. In 1517 and the, the years that would follow, they didn't rewrite the scriptures. It's not like all of a sudden Luther and Calvin and, and Beza and you know, these other uh, reformers looked at it and said, you know, we got to stick this into the book somehow. It was there, and it had been there. But the teachings of the church became influenced by human philosophy. And we began 
to lean on our own understanding. I would love to spend some time, and, and maybe we'll do a, a course one of these days in the history of doctrine to see how these things develop, because there are, are some historical pieces that we need to know, but I don't think that's suited to what we're doing today. I want to... Uh, I want to make sure that everything we're doing from the pulpit, we are sticking to the book. Amen? This is not about human opinion. It's not about systematic theology. It's about biblical theology. What's the difference? Systematic theology is where we systematize thought so that it's a lot of if this, then this. Okay, so if I believe this doctrine, then I have certain, with that presupposition, I have certain things that logically follow. And so I'm going to build that in a particular direction. Systematic theology is an excellent servant. It is a terrible master. It must always reflect the scripture and never seek to dictate the scripture. So as we look at the Bible, we want to see what does the Bible say. Biblical theology is letting the book interpret the book. We're going to interpret Scripture by Scripture. How does the Bible talk about this topic, whatever it is, in its various places? And how does it fit into God's overall purpose? As we talk about predestination and election there are some very key things we need to recognize at the outset. First, all who believe the Bible believe in election and predestination. You cannot believe the Bible and not believe in these concepts. Why? Because you're self-contradicting, right? If the Bible talks about it and I say, well, I don't believe it, well, then I don't believe the Bible. So I can't, that doesn't work. Everybody who believes the Bible believes in these two things. The, difference, the differences that we see are mainly regarding the basis and manner of God's actions. All right, so if you believe the Bible, you believe in these things because they're in the Bible. Where we find theological differences that end up dividing people are, well, what does it mean when God says predestination and election? Why does God choose whom he chooses? I can't escape the reality that it's in black and white, and red in some cases, that, that God does choose, but on what basis? And, and we argue about the manner. If God chooses, how does God choose? What, what does that look like when God chooses? And so that's where we start to get into what you might call gray areas, where uh, theologians will wrestle with it. And different systems of theology, for example, Calvinism versus Arminianism, some of you here uh, would consider yourselves Calvinist, some of you would consider yourselves Arminians, some of you are saying, what the heck are you talking about? Right? Which is why most of that is better suited to a class where we can discuss the, the deeper parts of it and the development of it. Suffice it to say that the divisions that we have are not over whether God chooses and predestines, but how and why. <clears throat> 
All who believe the Bible believe in election and predestination. The differences are mainly regarding the basis and manner of God's actions. So what exactly are we talking about? This idea of election comes from the, from the Greek oklegomai, that's the verb that it's based on, which simply means to choose or to appoint. This is where we see in Ephesians that God chose us. That's the same verb as, that, that we might use to elect. God elects. He, it's not a vote. Though there is one vote, there's only one. God says this, I choose you. I appoint you. I elect you. That's when whenever we see that idea, uh, it, it comes up in that form. It's coming from that, that Greek verb in a, a variety of ways. And it means this, God chooses whom he will save. God chooses whom he will save. That is an indisputable reality of the scriptures. We cannot get away from it. We'll see it as we go. We see it in Ephesians. If God does not choose whom he will save, then virtually everything we read in these 14 verses from 1 to 14 is false and pointless. More than that, we see over and over and over from Genesis as God chooses Abram out of his paganism to build the nation of Israel, as God chooses Jacob over Esau, as God chooses David to be king, as God chooses the prophets, as God says to Jeremiah, before you were even in the, in the womb, I knew you. And I had already chosen you, appointed you, to be my servant, to go and preach. We see Jesus say this over and over again, that there is a choosing. In fact, even in, in Christ's earthly ministry, he chose to heal some people, but not to heal everybody. There's a choosing, an election. <clears throat> election... God chooses whom he will save. Election is God's grace to sinners, giving life to the dead. We'll see that in a few moments. After I get through these initial points, then we'll go back to the text, and hopefully you'll see it. But I want you to be able to understand it before we go back to reading it again. Okay, so when we're talking about election, it has to do with choosing and appointment. God chooses whom he will save. Election is God's grace to sinners, giving life to the dead. Now, predestination is different. They, we often use them interchangeably. They're not the same thing. They're similar. They're inextricably connected, but they're not the same. Election is God's choosing. Predestination comes from the, the Greek, uh, Greek verb there. We're building it out of the Greek verb pro-orizmo. Orizo, sorry. I'm getting, to the, getting caught up in it. Pro-orizo. And it basically means to foreordain, to predetermine, to set a destination, much like if you were making travel plans, you don't get on the plane and just fly around until it happens to run out of gas and you land someplace, right? You have a destination in mind. You set out on a road trip because you're going somewhere. Predestination means I've planned that out. I have already determined where it's going to end up. It looks like this. God has a settled outcome for those he has chosen. 
God has a settled outcome for those he has chosen. We see in election, God chooses whom he will save. In predestination, God has a purpose. He has a settled outcome in that choosing. If you have been chosen by God, then you have been predestined for a particular outcome by God. What does that mean? Well, it means that predestination is the reason we can rest in him. Predestination is the reason we can rest in him. He has chosen us. He has extended grace that we did nothing to earn, nor could we, because we were dead in our sins. And he gives us grace, and in that grace gives us life. As he chooses us, he also, he doesn't do that arbitrarily or randomly. He has a purpose in it. And while he chooses us by his sovereign will for his pleasure, not based on any merit in ourselves, he doesn't do it without already having our perfection set. My destiny is settled in Christ. Everyone who has been chosen to be in Christ will then be like Christ. Your outcome is predetermined by God. All right, so if this is what we're talking about here, understand as we read this passage, we're going to read this again so that we can see it, that there are, and we'll jump ahead a little bit as well uh, to see what else he says in Ephesians regarding this. I just want you to know there's so much more I want to share with you and so many more passages I'd like to take you to. We don't have time for that. So if you have questions that this brings up, I want to encourage you, please, by all means, contact me. Because I know this is hard for some folks. For some of you are like, okay, what's the big deal? I get it. It's easy. Let's go. But for some of you, particularly uh, if you're from a background that, that either doesn't talk about such things or is opposed uh, to what we're talking about here, it might be really, really tough for you to swallow. Most things aren't hard to understand or to see in the Bible. They're just really hard to accept. If that's something you're struggling with, then by all means, contact me, message me, call me, uh, hunt me down in the street, whatever it takes. Because I want to be able to talk you through this, not so that you will agree with opinions, but so that we can see what God is saying in the Scripture and get everything out of it that He has in mind for us. Because if He didn't want us to read it, study it, know it, embrace it, and benefit from it, He wouldn't have put it in the book. But he did. So let's rock and roll. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's go back to reading the text again. <clears throat> We're going to focus on 3 to 14, but let's take a look at the greeting. Paul says, uh, as he writes this, Paul, I'm writing this, an apostle of, G of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Right out of the gate, before we even get any farther, we're seeing this election in this. I didn't choose to be an apostle. The people didn't vote for me to be an apostle. It's the will of God. And he's writing to God's holy people, God's saints, God's called out ones in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. We see that in Christ theme throughout the book. 
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I won't stop for every sentence, but I'm going to stop here, and then hopefully you'll see it in the rest of the sentences. Notice who's doing the doing here. Blessed be, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. We didn't bless ourselves. We didn't seek it out. God is the doer of what gets done as he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You will see throughout this passage as you read it, in every single point, God is the initiator. He is, as the writer of Hebrews would say, the author and perfecter. He's doing it. All right, let's continue. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us, election, in Him, before the creation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad. You didn't have a chance to seek Him before He chose you to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined. He predetermined your outcome. He's got this settled already in His sovereignty. In love, He predestined us. What is the purpose of our predestination? What is our end? To be adopted. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. On what basis? In accordance with His pleasure and will. Wait a minute, I thought I had to, to come to him. Well, yes, we'll get to that later. But no, it's his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, the one he loves, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. See how God is active in all of this? He purposed this in Christ, verse 10, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. It is already true, but the time for its revealing isn't here yet. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him, in Christ, in the one that the Father loves, the Beloved, we were also chosen. Here he's speaking specifically of these believing Jews. He'll get to that uh, going forward. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we Jews, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also, non-Jews, Gentile believers, who were also chosen, predestined, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you might want to put parentheses around that or underline it or highlight it in your Bible, because you, some of you are thinking, see, there's, this is our action. True, we've got to take hold of that. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, as you look at that text, it's pretty hard to escape the choosing and the predestining that God does. This is all from God. It's His initiating love. It's His benevolent grace, sovereignly given. Let's jump ahead to chapter 2. What what does he say here? Verse 1, As for you, you who are hearing this, who are receiving this, he's not speaking specifically to Jews or Gentiles, all who are hearing this, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. If I were taking notes here, I would underline dead or highlight dead, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's who you were. You were walking according to that mentality. You were dead. All of us, All of us also lived among them at one time. In case you thought you got a pass, nobody is clean. Everybody starts out dead. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires, its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were, by nature, it's who we were at the core of our being. It was our identity. We were deserving of wrath in the NIV 2011, the better rendering previously, was objects of wrath. I like older translations, children of wrath. That's who we were. It was our nature. It was our identity. It wasn't just you messed up on this particular occasion with this particular transgression, and therefore God is going to, we're done. You started out that way. All of us did. When you start out, dead, it's really hard to get anywhere else. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. All right, so having seen that, notice that we were dead. The issue that we run into here when it comes to predestination is sovereignty. Why do people wrestle so much? Why is it so hard for us to accept sovereignty? Why is it so hard for us to accept that God chooses whom he will save and he predestines them? And many of you are probably thinking or have, well, what about our free will, right? Somebody nod your head if you think, yeah, free will seems important, right? Anybody? Okay. What about our free will? See, this is where we run into the problem of sovereignty. We have created, don't miss what I'm saying here, because if it feels insulting and offensive, it's supposed to. We have created an idol of what we call free will. You will not find anywhere in the Scriptures that promotes the idea of human free will, free agency. In fact, what we see instead is that when we have what we would call free will, our sin 
snatches it up, makes a slave of our will, so that we can only choose in ourselves against God. I'm going to submit to you that there have only been two human beings in the history of the world. Let's set Jesus aside because of his two natures, but for the purpose of this conversation. Two human beings in the history of the world who had total free will to choose God. That's Adam and Eve. God created us originally in the state of perfection to be able to choose rightly because we were not separated from Him. The problem is, from that beginning, we chose wrong. And ever since then, we inherited that. And the rest of us have been enslaved by sin. Our nature, as he just said in chapter 2, is to be objects of wrath. We don't have a choice. That's where we start. You doubt me, don't you? John 3. Just keep Ephesians marked. Let's look at John 3 and what Jesus says. You're going to recognize some of this as, as the beautiful, loving, wonderful scripture that everybody knows in John 3.16. And it is. But don't miss out what, on what makes it loving. John chapter 3, starting with verse 3, Jesus replied as he's speaking to this Pharisee named Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Okay, let me just stop. Cause you to rethink being born again. One of those terms, every time we have these terms that we use outside of the biblical context, we get confused about what they mean. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2? You were dead. You have no hope when you're dead. You need to be reborn. You need to become alive. This is confusing on many levels, and it's confusing to this Pharisee Nicodemus. He says, how can this possibly be? Am I supposed to get back into my mom's womb? Jesus answered in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, reference to natural birth. This is not a reference to baptism, don't be confused. Unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Wait, and the Spirit? What does that mean? Flesh gives birth to flesh. This is how we know it's a reference to natural birth. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. That was a concept that, that Jews before the gospel should have understood. But notice what he says here in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What, what the Spirit of God does in a person is not something that you know. He doesn't put a mark on you, to borrow from Spurgeon. He said, unless God were to put a, a mark, if you lift someone's shirt and puts a big mark on their back with an E so he knows that they're elect, until, until that label shows up, I'm going to preach the gospel to everybody because I don't know whom the Spirit has chosen. I don't know whom the Spirit will enlighten to be able to see it. So I preach to everybody, because only God knows that. Okay. 
It's the Holy Spirit doing the work here. Verse 10. Uh, actually, jump ahead to verse uh, 12. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. That's everybody, right? People will argue about what that means, but yeah, when it says the world, it means the world. So that everyone who believes, that means you don't get into heaven unless you believe. You have to believe. There is a human responsibility there, isn't there? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is a statement of his purpose. Notice what he says following that. Whoever believes in him, believes in the Son, receives the Son of God, as in John 1.12, to as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's what we want, isn't it? Say amen if you don't want to be condemned. We, we want to not be condemned. We want to believe so we can have eternal life, so we can not perish. But, and this is huge, hmm. but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. All right, back to Ephesians. Our natural state is dead. Our natural state is condemned. If we don't believe and receive Christ, then when we see believe, it's not a mental ascent. It's placing our hope, our trust in this. This is our parachute. There is no other hope. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. If you don't, you're already dead. Make sense? Everybody with me so far? Okay. So if, if we follow that logic, then we can, can uh, proceed. The issue then it's not a matter of where we stand. It's not a matter of uh, whether God needs to do something for us. We're not wrestling over the grace. We're not really even wrestling, uh, if we're actually in any way trusting the Bible, with whether or not God chooses and predestined. But we're wrestling with how can God do that and be fair? I don't, I don't like that F word. We're going to get rid of fair. But how can God do that and be just? We wrestle with the idea of God's injustice. If God chooses some and doesn't choose others, well, that's not fair. That's not just. God's not, not doing right. In chapter 40, God says to, to Job, <laughs> would you accuse me to clear yourself? 
You're going to impugn the character of God because you don't get what's going on here so that your sense of justice can be appeased? There's only one sense of justice that matters, and it's mine because I am God, and you are not. When we wrestle with these things, and we should, we should wrestle with these things. I, I would suggest that maybe we don't wrestle with the deep things of God nearly enough. When we have a hard time accepting it, it's not because it isn't clear in the Scriptures. It's because we don't want to let God be God. We want God to fit into our box, our understanding, so that when God does what we think is right, oh, well, good, God is just. He's a good and loving God. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. He can't do that, though. <laughs> he, God can't act that way. God can't make that decision. God can't do that thing. We look at the Old Testament we're like, oh, well, how can a loving God do that? Stop. Just stop. This is where we really run into problems in the modern church. One thing that the Calvinists or Calvin gets right, just a little pause here. I want to encourage everybody to recognize that everybody who calls themselves Calvinists don't all follow Calvin's teaching. Calvin didn't believe or teach everything that those who call themselves Calvinists believe. Lots of people put labels on things, ditch the labels, get to the word. What Calvin got right is everything that he believed, everything that he taught, came from the overarching belief of the sovereignty of God. God can do what he wants because he is God and I'm not. And because God is God and God is good and loving and true and righteous and just and cannot lie and he is beyond we need to recognize first and foremost that everything that god does somebody say everything everything that god does is by definition just and holy nobody gets injustice from god god doesn't treat anyone unjustly the concept of election that we see in the scriptures is that some people get grace and everyone else gets justice. Everyone else gets what they deserve. But you don't want to get what you deserve. You want to get what God wants to give you in his grace. The issue that we wrestle with is sovereignty. And the issue of sovereignty comes down to the question of who gets to be God. Does God have to fit into my box, or do I have to deal with Him? I need to stop trying to make God fit my expectations and accept the reality of who He is so we can connect the reality of God to the realities of life. What you deal with every day is one thing, but that doesn't determine what is true and eternal. God does. How do we make those things fit together? That's what we want to work on. So how does it work? All right, in a nutshell, and I really want to, I, the reason it's taking me so long to get through this is because you've got to understand it, and I want to make sure that we're not falling into systematized theology, somebody else's opinions, but what do we see in the Scripture? So how does God's sovereign election and predestination work? 
specifically when we're talking about the choosing. How does this work? Ultimately, what it means is God brings the dead to life. Corpses make no effort, right? Tell me any corpse you've ever seen that puts out effort, that does anything to become alive. Corpses don't do that. God brings the dead to life. Let's take a look at John 11. A familiar story for most of us, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. In John 11, full disclosure, I'm stealing this illustration, well, first from John, (laughs) but also from Spurgeon. In the death of Lazarus, in chapter 11, we see that that, uh, Jesus arrives on the scene and Lazarus has been dead for four days, right? He's buried, he's in the grave. Uh, Verse 17 of John 11, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, a verse that should stir our souls, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Notice the shift here. So she believed already the teachings of the Scripture, the, the, that all the Jews would believe, that, that at the end, at the culmination, when the Messiah comes and God sets all things right, that there would be a general resurrection, that all people would be raised either to eternal reward with the Father or to eternal damnation and separation from the Father. Jesus says, there's more. I'm the resurrection. And now she says, I believe what you say, what you're telling me, what you've taught, what I've observed, what I've seen in the signs and wonders. You are the Messiah. I believe this. You are the Son of God who's to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place excuse me, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both sisters said the same thing in their grief. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Even knowing what was about to happen, his emotions flowed out of his eyes. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? The answer, by the way, is yes. That's not what he chose to do. 
Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Martha protests. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. There's an emphasis here in John's account. The man is dead. He's not a little dead. He's dead. Lord, by this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. In the King James, it says, Behold, he stinketh. (laughs) Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Why in the world am I reading to you about resurrection and Lazarus when we're talking about predestination? In Ephesians 2, we saw that we were dead in our transgressions until God made us alive. Lazarus is a pretty good illustration of that. When Jesus arrives at the tomb, Lazarus is dead. Behold, he stinketh. And Jesus has them open the tomb, and he says to Lazarus, now commonly there are multiple bodies in these tombs, And I've heard preachers say, it's a good thing Jesus said Lazarus, because if he hadn't said Lazarus come forth, they'd all jumped up and got out. It's true, except for he didn't need the word to make the point. Why did Lazarus get up? Why did Lazarus obey? When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, was Lazarus listening? He was dead. No, he wasn't. He wasn't listening. Did Lazarus want this guy laying in the tomb for four days? Did he want to be resurrected? Well, not not in this dead body, he didn't. Did Lazarus do anything to help Jesus out? How could he? He was dead. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, spoke life into him. And when Jesus gave him life, he was no longer dead but alive. And now, having been made alive, was able to obey. How much of that came from Lazarus? And how much of that came from God? This is the point. Dead people make no effort to do this. Back up a little bit to Romans Chapter 9, I'm sorry, back up from Ephesians. Go forward from John to Romans chapter 9. We won't read the whole thing. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, The text relates very directly to what we're talking about. But I want you to see one particular verse. I I don't like to read verses just out of context, but uh, the context is clear. There's nothing, we're not taking a left turn here. Take a look at verse 16. Having laid out God's statement uh, 
through Moses. I'm sorry, as Moses recorded it, but his statement uh, regarding Jacob and Esau. Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated, before they were ever born at all, but in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Look at verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. Older translation might tell you, he who wills or he who runs. It's not dependent on your desire or effort, but on God's mercy. To make it clear, he continues, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and hardens whom he wants to harden. This is the nature of it. God brings the dead to life. Corpses contribute nothing. They make no effort. Why is that hard? It, it becomes hard for us because we get confused by the concept that many would call the law of or the, the doctrine of double predestination. We don't like that. Now, before I explain it, I would like to suggest to you that if it were if this is how God works, He's God, I'm not. God has the right to do anything He wants because He is God. However, what makes this doctrine confusing is the belief that God predestines, he chooses, he elects some to life and grace, and some he creates specifically to ordain them to, a hell, to hell and eternal damnation. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? Now, there is a, there's a philosophical uh, walkthrough that would, would kind of lead you in that direction, but ultimately what we're talking about is not that God is saying, you are destined to hell, most Calvinists don't believe that. Some do. But that you are already on your way to hell because of sin in you. It's the natural state into which you are born. And God snatches some from the fire. Why doesn't God snatch everybody from the fire? I don't know. In order that His purpose and election might stand to the praise of His glorious grace. Beyond that, he doesn't tell us. So some come up with different explanations of how and why and why God chose this one over that one and, and so on and so forth. But all of that is speculation because it's not in Scripture. That comes from a systematic theology, not from a biblical theology. What we know for sure is God chooses based on His own grace. And in choosing, God then settles your outcome before the earth was ever formed. He chose you in Christ, predestined you to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, to be holy and blameless in His sight. So what's the conclusion? If we're talking about election and predestination, as we wrestle through this, the conclusion is this, God is sovereign and man is still responsible. It's not either or, but both and. It is God's sovereignty, and in God's sovereignty, He requires your action. Where we tend to debate is over things that are on God's side of the curtain. How many of you know, if it's on God's side of the curtain, it's above our pay grade? I don't have to understand it. I have to deal with it. 
on my side of the curtain, what I know is he has given me truth and I am responsible to receive it. I am responsible to believe. The preacher that, that uh, we sat under in Illinois used to, to say it this way. It's a pretty common way of, of looking at it. That the door to heaven has a sign on the front as you approach it that says, whosoever may come, whosoever will come. And on the back side of that door, when you are already in and you have come to Christ and been saved, and you get in and you turn around and you see what Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. We need to take responsibility for our choices and actions. If those choices and actions only happen because God gives us a special measure of grace to be able to see it, then so be it. May God be praised. It's not from us. It's from him. Now, having done our explanation, let's move more quickly through the examination. What is the evidence of my election to salvation? We, we see from uh, Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we should examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. In Philippians 2.12, he says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means figure it out. Find out for sure if you really believe. And if you really believe, do something about it. Work that out. Let, you're not earning it. You're displaying it. So work it out. How do we do this? Moving quickly, I won't have you look these up. The references I think are for you. If not, I'll say them out so you can jot them down. What is the evidence of my election to salvation. How do I know that I belong to him? First, obedience. Disciples follow the master. Disciples follow the master. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. All right? Now, we're not earning it. We'll see that as we go along in Ephesians. It's all grace. It's all God. But if we are in him, we display that through our obedience. Secondly, love. Those who love Jesus love like Jesus. Those who love Jesus love like Jesus. John 13, 35. By this the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. If we love Jesus, then we will not only reflect him in loving, but we will love the things and the people that Jesus loves. Jesus loves the Father. He loves the Word of God. He loves the church. If we love him, we love the church as well. This is how people will see that we are his disciples. Third, we, we receive a new heart. A new heart. An unregenerate heart cannot love the things of God. Ezekiel 36, 26, the Lord says through the prophet, I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. I will take out this heart of stone, give you a new heart and a new spirit. Notice this. If Christ is precious to me, that thought didn't come from me. If Christ is precious to me, that thought did not come from me. I am a sinner, already an object of wrath, already dead in sin, unable to desire or cherish the Lord. My sinful heart is hostile to God in Romans 8. It doesn't submit to God. It can't submit to God. I don't have it in me. I need Him to change me with a new heart that loves the Lord and loves the things of the Lord. Fourth, what is the evidence of my election to salvation? Obedience, love, a new heart, and repentance. 
Repentance. The direction of my thinking and life is Godward. The direction of my thinking and life is Godward. The things that used to rouse me now repel me. What I used to love, I hate. I used to love my sin. Unregenerate people don't think about how much they're offending God with their behavior. They might think about the negative consequences, the the knock to my reputation, what it might cost me. What they don't think about is, I have sinned before the holy God. It takes a regenerate heart to do that. When my heart turns, when I change my thinking, I receive that new mind with my new heart, which leads me to go in a different direction. My direction goes from a self-directed path to pursuing God. I now go to Him. I only do that in true repentance. The pilgrim's progress has a destination, and we're traveling in that direction. The direction of my thinking in life is Godward. I would direct you to look at Acts 11.18, Romans 7.22, Romans 8.5, Galatians 5.17. The things of the flesh and the things of the spirit are in conflict with one another. So you don't do the things that you want. So we have this tension between us. It's not that you never sin. Repentance does not mean that you're perfect. Goodness, no, or we'd all be in trouble. We are now moving in a Godward direction, not perfectly, but progressively, increasingly. Lastly, as we see this evidence. And there is certainly more. We could expand the list, but these are key evidences of my election to salvation. How do I know if I am saved? I obey the word. I love like Jesus does. I desire the things of God. I desire not just the blessings, but the person of God. I have turned from following my way to following God's way. And lastly, we see the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is producing Christ-like character in me. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, we see the, the nine manifestations that Paul lists there of the fruit of the Spirit. Are there more? Sure, there are more. But the point of the passage is, what we do in ourselves, the sinfulness is obvious but the fruit of the Spirit is what He is producing in us. If we are in Christ, if we want to know if we're been, have we have been elected, do you look more like Him all the time? Is the Spirit convicting you? Are you having a hard time sinning? You might still sin, but does it break you inside when you do? The unregenerate heart is okay with sin. Maybe not consequences, but sin, fine. The regenerate heart, one who has been reborn, still sins. But now I hate that sin. It's not who I am. It's contrary to the Spirit living in me. And the Spirit living in me produces character of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think I forgot joy in there. As we, I probably forgot some others. Did I forget some others in there? Yeah. But you get the idea that we are producing... We are not. He is. We are bearing the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. Let's wrap this up by looking at consolation. 
What is the effect of our election and predestination? The desired, the intended response that Paul has here is not that we would be confused and fearful thinking, oh my goodness, God, maybe he hasn't chosen me. Maybe I'm not allowed to come to him. Our memory verse from John 6.37 tells us otherwise. In John 6.37, we see that all the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ. And all who come to Christ, he will never cast out. If you have come to Christ, if you want Jesus, not if you want to fit into the church or you want to look good and fix your reputation, get custody of your kid by by being a good church person, all those kinds of things. If that's what you want, then you don't get it. But if your desire is intimacy with Him on His terms, not yours, then you can know that that's God moving in you so that you have been chosen. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith and work it out. And the result will be this. First, certainty. Certainty. My salvation rests on God's character, not mine. My salvation rests on God's character, not mine. I have the certainty of knowing that I am accepted in Christ. He chose me. He predestined me to be conformed to the likeness of the Son. He has made me His child. I can be confident in salvation because it doesn't come from me in the first place. I can be bold in God's grace because it's not something I can earn. I can't unearn what I didn't earn. I cannot undo what I didn't do in the first place. So I can fully enjoy that relationship. Second, in addition to certainty, we have security. Nothing can stop my Father's plans for me. Nothing can stop my Father's plans for me. There's no reason for me to live in fear because I have been chosen. And the living God of all creation who chose me and gave me a destiny as His child will not let any true harm come to me. Whatever might come into my life, God is already working out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I can have peace because I have a settled future. I may fear, but I no longer have any reason to fear. Because of this consolation from election and predestination, I can be certain, I can be secure. And the final effect is gratitude. God's great grace moves and motivates me. It moves me to loving worship exuberant gratitude. God's great grace now is my driving theme. And I can rest in the blessed assurance that I can't blow it because it's all from Him. This is the purpose for God to continually tell us, I've chosen you. I've predestined you. Therefore, you are secure. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, as we have looked through this in what is ultimately a brief survey of this topic, despite the length of the sermon, Lord, you have so much more to say. I pray that this would give us just a glimpse and a beginning to be able to move into 
a truer fellowship with you where we are able to recognize that you are God and we are not. And as we have been chosen for adoption, predestined for that settled outcome, guaranteed to receive the inheritance that you finish what you started in us. Father, I pray that it would give us this blessed assurance, a strong faith as we grow in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. As the first Sunday of the month, I'm supposed to have a shorter